what I would say that it's just a fantastically exciting time for the industry, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it is one of those once in a generation opportunities where we are fundamentally going to transform the industry and do it uh, in a way that you know has real meaning in a much more broader sense for the climate change and for the planet as a whole. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. This morning, we're happy to be joined by John Pettigrew. John is the CEO of National Grid in the United Kingdom, with also subsidiaries in the United States. John, welcome to EEI. Hi, Lawrence. Nice to talk to you. Well, John, I want to start by maybe going back to history and have you just give us a little bit of a walk through about National Grid, how you guys got to where you are uh, to today being one of the uh, sort of a leading clean energy uh, companies in the world. Can you tell us about your journey to this to this to this state? Yeah, thank you, Lawrence. Well, actually, I'll take you right back to 1990, actually, when National Grid was formed. It was formed out of what was the privatization of the electricity industry in the UK. and. Uh, during the sort of late 1990s, we started to uh, expand as a business. Uh, so starting from being an electricity transmission company only in the UK, we did a number of acquisitions in the late 1990s and early 2000s in the northeast of the US. So we acquired Niagara Mohawk and New England Electricity, uh, some utilities in Rhode Island, and then ultimately Keyspan in 2007. So today we're actually just slightly... Uh, above 50% UK uh, and slightly below 50% US as a business, uh, serving over 20 million people in the, in, in the US. Uh, and in the UK, we are the only transmission company, gas and electricity, of course. Well, that's, that's interesting. You talk about the transition. Um, currently, our industry is going through major transition. The whole energy sector globally is going through transition. And there are lots of discussions around the key topic of achieving net zero goals. And of course, the UK has taken the lead in this. Um, what more can you uh, share with us that policymakers should be doing to accelerate this transition? Yeah, so I think, first of all, Lawrence, it's always worth just uh, reminding people that just how far the utility sector has come over the last few years in terms of the energy transition in both the US and in the UK. You know, the shift that has gone on is quite remarkable, actually. If you just look at the amounts of renewables that are now being used to produce electricity in both the UK and US, you know, uh, records are being set every day in terms of the amounts of uh, renewables that are being used. Uh, but as I look forward, the challenge ahead is a steep one. You know, so we have made fantastic progress, but if we're ultimately going to achieve net zero uh, across the economies of the world, then it's going to take an acceleration and there needs to be a real focus on execution. For me, we need to get clarity on the key policies that government uh, wants us to invest in and we need clarity on regulation. And stability and predictability around policy and regulation, I think, is really important if we're going to achieve net zero going forward. So that, that ties into the next conversation point, which has to do with COP26. Obviously, the UK is a host, is the host for COP26, and, and National Grid is playing an important role as a partner with COP26. So, so how important is your participation in this part of your long-term strategy? Yes, it's really important, Lawrence. We, um, we were delighted to be asked and are very proud to be a principal partner for COP26. I mean, it allows us to really engage with UK governments and stakeholders around the world on ensuring, first and foremost, that COP26 
is really successful. You know, it's the most important UN climate change conference since Paris. Uh, and we have huge aspirations that countries will come together uh, in Glasgow in November and will set even more ambitious targets. Uh, and it gives us an opportunity to demonstrate what the utility sector has been doing uh, and intends to do to support net zero. It gives us an opportunity to showcase some of the great things that are going on uh, in national grid and in the sector to support net zero. And of course, it's an opportunity to inspire, inspire the new generation that we're going to need that is going to deliver on net zero going forward. So uh, it's a really important part of our strategy. National Grid has positioned itself as a utility that wants to enable the energy transition. It believes that climate change is man-made and therefore being a supporter of COP26, you know, is a massively important part of our strategy uh, and demonstrates to our key stakeholders you know, just how important it is to us. And I think an important part of the energy transition, obviously, is renewable energy. You mentioned the record the records being set around integrating renewable energy. Uh, what is National Grid doing more concretely in terms of integrating renewables, both in the U.S. and, and, and in, in the U.K.? Yeah, so as you can imagine, we're doing a huge amount. I mean, if I just start with the U.K., uh, so in the U.K., we're the electricity system operator, so we're responsible for that real-time balancing of, of demand and supply. And um, last year, we set out a very ambitious target that by 2025, we want to be in a position as the system operator to be able to operate the system uh, where all the electricity is produced from zero carbon sources. So whether that's solar, wind, uh, nuclear, hydro, doesn't matter what the background is, we want to be in a position where we're able to do that. That's not us necessarily saying we'll be in that position in 2025 but we want to be ready for it. And that means developing new products and new services to operate the system in a very different way to the way that it's been operated over the last 40 or 50 years. At the same time, uh, the UK government has set some really ambitious targets. So the Prime Minister set out his 10-point plan uh, just before Christmas last year. And one of the key uh, elements of that was to connect 40 gigawatts of offshore wind in the North Sea by 2030. So to put that into context, over the last decade, about 10 gigawatts has been constructed. So it's a massive ramp up. And National Grid is working hard with our key stakeholders, the regulatory and government to really uh, set up a blueprint that will enable that level of generation to be connected and with all the infrastructure that's going to be needed to be built to support that. And in the US, uh, again, we're doing a huge amount within the states that we operate. Uh, one of the key challenges we've had, particularly in Massachusetts, has been just the quantity of solar that wants to connect to the networks. So we've been working with regulators and developers to find a way to that they can do that more quickly and more efficiently, uh, making sure that we've made the investments, but we're not inhibiting them from connecting to the network. And similarly, of course, it's quite exciting time in the Northeast with the opportunities for offshore wind that are now developing. And National Grid is working on that directly. We've just announced a recently a partnership with RWE to look at opportunities to invest in offshore wind but as one of the incumbent utilities, we're also looking at how you connect that volume of wind. How do you ensure you do it in a way that's efficient uh, and a way that's right for our customers? So um, we're extremely busy, whether it's in transmission, distribution, offshore, uh, or supporting renewables such as solar in the Northeast as well. So I think there's this unprecedented scale of, of renewable energy coming on the grids around the world certainly possess, I mean, present some opportunities and challenges. If you step away from national grid in the UK and the US, if you just think more globally, what would you say to the audience are some of the challenges or maybe the, the opportunities you see with this 
amount of renewables coming on the grids around the world. What would you identify as one or two key opportunities for electric companies? I think, um, you know, when I think about electric companies and you think about net zero, then, as I said, uh, the the industry has made a fantastic uh, sort of progress over the last decade. Um, but there is so much more to be done. So I, I tend to think about net zero in waves and in terms of opportunities. So the first wave, of course, is the decarbonization of generation. And we're seeing fantastic progress in that, both in terms of things like solar and offshore wind. And, you know, many electric companies are busy making sure that we can support our customers in, in making those connections. But the next wave is going to be electrification of transport. Uh, and that's going to create opportunities, opportunities in terms of just shifting what is just a huge amount of liquid energy onto our networks. Uh, and with that, it gives us the opportunity with artificial intelligence and digitization to really optimize the ways that we're using our networks and, and create opportunities as well with things like smart meters in things like real-time tariffs. So customers can choose when they charge their vehicles. Uh, and ultimately, Lawrence, um, I think many of us think that ultimately customers can provide a service back to the networks uh, using battery storage as an opportunity to do that. So I see that as a real opportunity for us. And then the third wave is, you know, how you think about heat. So, you know, electrification of heat is going to be an important part, I think, of net zero. And again, that creates challenges for us as electric companies to think about how we're going to support that going forward. But three times as much energy goes through our gas networks in the US and in the UK. And it's similar in other countries than goes through our electric networks. So that creates some real opportunities, I think, for us as electric companies. In terms of the challenges, you know, I'll give you two. One is just how we ensure we got the transparency to make sure we got the right supply chain to be able to deliver on the levels of infrastructure that are going to be needed. I mean, if you just think about the number of cables that are going to be needed to support the offshore wind and to reinforce the networks, it is going to be at a magnitude that we've not seen for, for many, many years. And then the second challenge, I think, and one that's very important to National Grid is how do we ensure that we bring everybody along on this journey? We don't want anybody to be left behind, and therefore we need to think about how we support customers. There's a cost associated with doing this transformation, uh, and we want to make sure that everybody can participate in energy in the energy transition uh, and that nobody is left behind. And I think that's a real challenge for all of us as we think about net zero. Uh, I completely agree. It is a global challenge. Just, just one quick segue question, John. You've been around the industry for a long time. Could you have imagined that electricity was going to be at the core of the energy debate 20 years ago? Did, could you even envision this happening? <laughs> no, I quite often talk to my uh, my uh, my graduates and apprentices, actually, Lawrence, uh, and you know, I talk about the future, and then I remind them that you know, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, would we be where we are today? Then I would never have guessed it. So. Who knows where we'll be in you know in 20 years' time? So what I would say that it's just a fantastically exciting time for the industry, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it is one of those once-in-a-generation opportunities where we are fundamentally going to transform the industry and do it uh, in a way that you know has real meaning in a much more broader sense for for climate change and for the planet as a whole. Yeah. Now, so that's great. And you mentioned you know, the whole idea of transformation and transitioning. I want to move on to something that many industry observers have a, have seen as a maybe a strategic pivot. This national grid acquisition of WPD, um, the announcement was made. Uh, now, people see this as a strategic pivot uh, for national grid. Do you agree? And can you tell us about the drivers behind the decision for this uh, shift, so to speak? Yeah, so it's always nice, isn't it, when um, I think I described it as a strategic pivot, and now people are playing it back at me as is it a strategic <laughs> pivot, but so the answer is it was. Um, and we saw it very much as that. So um, I guess like a lot of boards uh, in, the, in the sector, we spent a lot of time looking at 
the energy transition, both electricity and gas. And what does that mean for us as a company? So National Grid has taken the view that which, whichever scenario you look at, then the growth in electricity is going to be long-term, it's going to be certain, and it's going to be strong. Uh, having said that, we spent a lot of time looking at gas as well, and we are convinced that gas has got a massively important role to play in this energy transition. As I said earlier on, you know, three times as much energy goes through gas networks. And when you think about the engineering, the cost, and the practicalities, then you quite quickly get to a view that gas has a role to play as well. But when we um, when we were thinking about all this last year, we uh, you know, PPL uh, decided they were going to sell the WPD business. Um, and for us, it was an opportunity. It was an opportunity to enter the electricity distribution market in the UK at scale. So as I said, we're a transmission company in the UK. Uh, and we do electricity distribution in the US. So it was an opportunity to do that at scale. But more strategically, it did allow us to pivot. So with the other transactions that we announced, we ultimately end up being as a group 70% electric, 30% gas. Uh, which for me feels like the right sort of weight for national grid, given how we see the energy transition. But at the same time, it maintains the geographic and regulatory diversity that national grid has. So it means that we're about 50% UK networks, 40% US networks, and 10% is our commercial national grid ventures business. So it gives us a nice balance. And I think that's quite important for a sustainable proposition to our investors as well. So very strategic in the way that we thought about it, but really excited about the opportunity it gives us it truly does put National Grid at the heart of the energy transition in the UK, given our size and scale. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, nobody will disagree that key for this sort of acquisition is going to be the role of innovation. And I think innovation is also very important for the energy transition. So, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, the role that innovation is going to play. Can you tell us about National Grid's innovation strategy, both in terms of investing in startups, but just more broadly, you know, how, how are you guys positioning yourself in an innovation perspective to meet some of the challenges ahead of us? Yes, it's a great question, Lawrence. We've been thinking of it very carefully, actually. So um, we've been thinking about what do we need to do with the networks from an innovative perspective to support the energy transition. So I'm going to just give you a few examples. So we've just recently um, commissioned a, a substation that we built in the UK, in Deeside, in the, in the north of England, which will allow us to test new equipment that comes through our innovation pipeline, uh, remote from the main system, but at a scale that means that we can accelerate innovation and put it onto our network very quickly. Similarly, we're doing a, a massive project uh, in the UK, and we're doing similar projects in the US and the Northeast, actually, just exploring, so how could you repurpose our gas transmission network for hydrogen? Uh, so we know that you can put so much hydrogen into the network without the need for investment, but how far could you push it? What investment would you need? And can you ultimately repurpose these networks? So we're looking at, uh, we're looking at areas like that. And then more specifically, um, as you'd expect, you know, fundamentally, Nashville is an engineering company, so we're looking to see whether there's innovation that's going to help us to be, have a, less, a lower impact on the environment. So things like replacing SF6, which as you know, is one of the, you know, a significant insulating gas used throughout the world. Mm -hmm. So we're working with our supply chain to see if there's a green alternative to that. So that as we replace these networks, as we evolve the networks, we're having a lower impact on climate. And then um, since I became CEO back in 2016, I set up a, a business called National Partners. Uh, and we set aside about $300 million to actually look to do innovation in a different way to the way we've done it traditionally as a utility, which is to uh, effectively invest in startup companies that are looking at technologies and products 
that I guess would be over the hill in terms of the things in the future. Uh, my objective from that was to partner with those startup companies and to really get a much better understanding of what those new technologies are, how they're going to impact on networks, and how do we then need to evolve. The benefits of doing that, of course, is we can partner with them. We give them access to our networks. It helps them as startups. We quite often put our senior executives on their boards. Uh, and that's enabled us to get some really helpful insight into innovation and how we will need to evolve as a business. And um, you know, we've, we've entered in some fantastic partnerships uh, that have been successfully both strategically, but also financially in terms of the way that we've invested. So um, you know, that is definitely one of the things we'll continue to focus on as we move forward. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You, you mentioned the the at some point you mentioned scaling up, and I think one of the challenges facing our industry has been for a long time. How do you scale up and accelerate uh, technology deployment, whether it's energy storage, artificial intelligence, but also HVDC, something that has been around for a long time, but it seemed to have been sort of a hijacked, if you may, by the UK and the Scandinavians. So, so because where you have the world sort of the highest concentration of HVDC. So, so how do we scale up these technologies and connect them to the grid? I mean, what do you think needs to happen? No, I think that the most important thing to happen is really about getting uh, government and regulators to create the right environment so that these technologies can develop and thrive. I mean, I think offshore wind is a great example where that's happened. So, you know, if you go back five or 10 years ago and you look at the cost of offshore wind in terms of megawatt, uh, you know, sort of dollars and pounds per megawatt hour, uh, it's probably it was probably three times what it is today. And that's because we had regulatory and government support to help the technology to evolve, to increase its utilization. And now it's become mainstay. And I think we need to do the same thing whether that's in carbon capture and storage, whether it's in long-term storage, which I think is one of the real challenges that we've got uh, as we move forward. And we think about how do you support uh, customers when you've got a lot of intermittent generation from solar and wind. Uh, but also there's some fantastic technologies out there. You know, we've just put some new technology on our network called SmartWires, uh, which allows us to increase the capacity of our circuits without actually investing in new circuits. And uh, you know, really clever, really smart, partnering with technology companies uh, is created real opportunities. So uh, for me, it's about creating the right environment, getting some support from government and regulators. And then, you know, over time, that support can sort of reduce as the technology uh, matures and the utilization increases. And I think offshore wind is a good example. And we just need to do the same things uh, as we look to new technologies going forward. Just staying on that point, the fact that you're in two of the world's most important economies, does it allow you to sort of uh, learn from both places how you deploy technologies? I mean, you look at the US, you experiment there, you experiment in the UK. Does that help your deployment strategy being in both both markets, so to speak? Um, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, to be like, we would have never entered into our partnership with RWE looking at offshore wind in the US had we not spent the last five years building uh, HVDC cables in Europe. You know, so the expertise and the capability that we built up here, we're able to deploy there. And um, similarly, a lot of the work that we're doing in the U.S., looking at how we repurpose our gas distribution networks, how, how the role of hydrogen is going to develop, is really important for us in our U.K. business as well. So um, we spend a lot of time making sure that we've got the right uh, sort of uh, processes in place to ensure that we've got best practice sharing going across our group. It's one of the things that I think differentiates national grid from you know from just being a domestic utility 
Yeah, you, you mentioned not leaving anybody behind as you talk about the energy transition. We know that access to affordable and reliable energy is necessary to ensure the transition is just and, and equitable. Um, so what more can governments do to attract private capital or maybe partner with private sector uh, to finance the energy access issue across the world? Um, you know, we spent quite a lot of time thinking about um, how do we ensure that there's an equitable process, I guess, Lawrence, uh, for our customers going forward. Um, you know, I think about some of the great examples that we've had in, in our jurisdictions, and I know other utilities have the same, where working in partnership with regulators and with our key stakeholders and politicians, we've been able to put in place uh, some fantastic programs like our energy efficiency program in Massachusetts, for example, which, you know, is always, you know, one of the top energy efficiency programs in the U.S., uh, which really does help folks to you know, put the right insulation in, uh, replace boilers and all that sort of good stuff in a way that helps them be feel supported. Um, my view is we need to think about it in the same way as we think about the transition for energy. We need to think about those people who are not going to be able to afford to make the investments up front and how we can support them. Uh, and you know, sitting down with our regulators and with key politicians and stakeholders, I think it's critical to doing that. Outside of that, you know, in, the, in terms of the bigger infrastructure investment that's needed, then actually, if we get the right regulation, if we get the right policies in place, there's plenty of private money to, to come into the sector to, to support those types of investment. But yes, to make sure that it is a just uh, an equitable trans transition, we do need to focus on those very specific customer targeted areas, I think. So there are two phrases or two two themes seem to dominate our industry today. One is so-called ESG, uh, and the other one is DE&I. Uh, both of these phrases relating to environmental social governance and the other one, diversity, equity, and inclusion, have really been headlines across the world. And our industry is no 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 sort of a uh, is no no a, sort of a an organ is not left behind. It's part of this discussion as well. And so, so what is National Grid doing in these areas, both say in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, as it relates to this ESG discussion, as well as as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah. So over the last um, couple of years, Lawrence, we um, we have spent a lot of time as a company um, thinking thinking about ESG. We're actually thinking about it more broadly. So we, we think about what's our role as a responsible business. Um, and how do we demonstrate to our stakeholders, to local communities, that actually we are focusing on the right things and that we are actually making a contribution to society that's broader than just uh, the traditional things of jobs and, and profits and, and dividends and so on. Uh, so last year, I'm really proud to say that we published our Responsible Business Charter. And what that did was to set out um, our commitments, our ambition, our actions that we're going to take to support uh, ESG, but more broadly, how we're going to support uh, the local community, society, um, as well as the economy going forward. Uh, and as part of that, we also set out a commitment that every year, alongside our annual report, we'll produce a responsible business report. And effectively, what we're trying to do here is to say to people, look, hold us to account. We think this is really important. We think it's the right thing to do as a responsible business. Um, and therefore, we will set out each year what our intentions are and you can hold us to account as a management team that we are really driving that agenda forward. And, you know, it covers the ESG elements, but it goes broader than that in terms of how we're supporting society, how we're supporting our local communities, how we're looking to create jobs, how our people within the organization are encouraged to do things like supporting charities, 
uh, mentorships and those types of things. So I'm really pleased with the progress that we've made. Of course, we've got a long way to go, like all companies, to make sure that we continue to deliver uh, against those objectives. But um, that has been a very big focus for us. Uh, and in terms of diversity uh, and inclusion, um, again, I think we've made a lot of progress as a company over the last few years, but we've got a long way to go. We've set ourselves a very clear ambition, uh, which is that we want to be a reflection of the local communities in which we work. Uh, and therefore, our workforce should be reflective of that. Uh, today, we're not quite there, but we're very focused on doing that. Uh, we've recently appointed a chief diversity officer to make sure that we've got someone within the organization uh, with the capability to hold management to account and to keep challenging us to develop new strategies and new new um, initiatives to make sure that we are moving that agenda forward. Uh, and we've got some fantastic programs. Uh, and you know, We are making progress. So things like our reverse mentorship program uh, is, is something that is really valued within the organization. And we have individual resource groups that get together and think about what we can do to make the organization more inclusive. Uh, and to make sure that ultimately we have a diverse workforce going forward. So um, it's, a, again, a real focus for us, as it is for many companies. Uh, and over the last 12 months, I'm really pleased, actually, that we've got a clear strategy. We've brought in capability to help us on that journey, uh, and we'll continue to focus on it. Well, we've been talking for about half an hour, and I haven't brought up COVID-19, but I'm going to do it now. <laughs> but not from all the sort of uh, the, the context most people hear, but I want to talk about the pandemic from the standpoint of the impact it could be having on the shortage of skilled workers around the world and, and the difficulty in attracting talent to this industry. Um, I know the National Grid is about to embark on your Global Youth Engineering Climate Conference. Um, so how do you see COVID affecting the shortage of workforce or workforce more broadly? And what is National Grid trying to achieve by organizing this Global Youth Engineering Climate Conference? Yes, yeah, so, um, you know, we've been thinking very carefully about how do we continue to attract the, the talent that we need into the organization. Uh, again, like many organizations, I think, you know, as we look forward to the next decade, we, we're confronted with two significant challenges. Uh, one is that um, if you look at the average age of our workforce, then many of them are going to be eligible for retirement going forward. And that, that means that we're going to lose a lot of capability and experience. But on the other hand, we're also, you know, as I've talked about, in the midst of an energy transition, which means we need new skills and new capabilities going forward as well. So that's the challenge and the opportunity. Um, COVID, uh, as we as a company have, tried really hard to actually maintain the programs that we need to attract people into the organization. So our summer intern last year, our apprenticeship program, our graduate programs, we maintained them. Now, they were really hard to do, as you can imagine, because a lot of those folks weren't actually coming into the office or going out to site. So we had to do it virtually, but we managed to maintain uh, our programs going forward. But the real challenge for us, uh, and I think for the industry more broadly, is how do we attract people into the industry, uh, given you know, it's such a competitive market. And the things that I think are important, the things that we, we think are important, is one, uh, making sure that people understand that we are a responsible business and that we have a purpose. And you know, from the testing that we've done, Lawrence, that resonates really strongly. People want to work for organizations uh, like utilities because we have such a critical role to play in the energy transition. Uh, and it really does resonate with the people that uh, are, are leaving school and colleges. Um, so I think that 
is massively important to us uh, in terms of that purpose. But also it's the opportunity. You know, it's the opportunity in terms of it's an exciting time to be joining the industry. So the Global Youth Engineering Climate Conference is very much about bringing young professionals together. So these are kids just leaving school, 16-year-olds up to sort of early 30s. And the purpose is to create a virtual event uh, in the sort of precursor and, and the run-up to COP26 to really foster collaboration and to build a global community of young professionals. And our intention is to inspire uh, so that people want to join the industry or if they're part of the industry to really create a network in which they uh, can work with their peers uh, over hopefully many years into their career. So we're going to be focusing on things like green skills. We're going to be focusing on uh, some of the challenges around, you know, so how do you think about an energy network in a, in a net zero world? Uh, and we're going to try and create an agenda that's personal as well. So what can you do individually? Uh, uh, in terms of your contribution to, to, the, to the broader uh, climate change agenda, as well as what can you do as a participant in the energy sector. So we're really quite excited about it. The sort of response to date has been, has been fantastic. We're going to run two events, I think, uh, on the 7th and 8th of September. They're going to be at times that mean that we get a global audience. Um, and hopefully, you know, we will inspire people who are thinking about their careers to join the industry. Um, uh, and those that are in the industry, hopefully we'll inspire them to really collaborate and work across multiple countries to, to help to address the challenges we face. Well, I can tell you, John, that you already know this perhaps, that, that EEI is fully supportive of this, uh, this uh, youth engineering climate and we'll do our best on our side to make sure as many people can attend and participate and listen in. Um, a few more questions to wrap things up here. And, I, and, and this, I want to get a little bit more personal. <laughs> so under your leadership, National Grid, uh, uh, continues to transform itself, many accomplishments. So tell us about your leadership philosophy. Um, you know, what's what's in it for John? I mean, how does John get a big organization like this to share your vision and execute on your on your vision? Tell us about your leadership philosophy. Yeah, thanks, Lawrence. Um, so when I became CEO in, in 2016, I actually spent quite a lot of time thinking about what, what, what was it about National Grid in the industry that it kept me years since 1990. So um, and what is it that motivates me? And if I could translate that for the rest of the organization, then that was going to be really important. And actually, I spent a huge amount of time in my first few months just getting around the organization and talking to people. And what became clear to me was that the reason people uh, stayed with National Grid, wanted to be part of the industry, uh, were excited about uh, continuing to work with us, was that um, what we do is something more than just make widgets. You know, we have a real impact on society. Uh, so we're purpose-led. You know, we have a purpose to what we do. And, you know, that underpins my, my leadership philosophy, I guess, which is I've always wanted to be part of an organization that can make a difference. Um, and I always want to have people around me that feel the same. So that's really important to me, that our philosophy is that we're a responsible business, that we have a purpose, and that we're making a contribution that's broader than just financial. And then um, in National Group, we've got sort of three values that we talk a lot about, and they really probably are a reflection of my sort of leadership philosophy. So the first is do the right thing. Uh, so it's something I talk a lot about in the organization. And very simply, this is about, it doesn't matter when your supervisor's not watching you, you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, whether that's in responding to a customer query, whether it's an ethical behavior, but that's really important to me as a leader, that we have people who do the right thing and feel empowered to do the right thing. 
The second uh, probably reflects my own personality, which is uh, our second value is to find a better way, which is really about my personality is one of restlessness, which is, you know, I'm very proud of us as an organization, but I always want to look for continuous improvement. I always want to find a better way of serving our customers. And that sort of runs through my philosophy of leadership. And then the third value that we have is to make it happen, uh, which is, you know, something that frustrates me as a leader is, you know, prevarication where people spend a lot of time talking about stuff but actually don't get stuff done. Uh, and I think as a business, you know, I always want to have people around me that get things done. And then I underpin, you know, that's probably all underpinned by, you know, as a leader, I'm very open. Uh, I value honesty. Uh, people who are down to earth, straight speaking. I think that's really important. Um, and I guess the final thing I'd say, Lawrence, is, you know, we are, as, as leaders are here to enable our organization and to ensure our people succeed. Uh, I think that's really important, and it's not the other way around. You know, occasionally you'll meet leaders who think that the organisation's there to serve them. That's not my philosophy. We're here to serve the organisation and to uh, hopefully, you know, make sure that all the people that work for us uh, can fulfil their own ambitions and bring their full selves to work as well. So that's an important part of my philosophy. So purpose-led servant leadership. I like that. <laughs> uh, so talking about leadership. Uh, vision is so important in the world today, and, and we talk about vision all the time, and, and if you think of the world where we stand today, there's a, a yearning uh, on the part of global citizens for leadership, both at corporate level, but also domestic and national levels, international levels. So for you, John, um, what is your vision for National Grid and, and, the, and the power sector more globally? Uh, say by the year 2030 and the year 2050, give you two time horizon. Where, where do you see National Grid and where do you see the power sector? Yeah, so so our vision at National Grid, we we like all organisations, you spend a lot of time over the words, don't you? But um, for us, uh, we describe our vision as we want to be at the heart of a clean, fair, and affordable energy future. Um, and those words are important. So clean is because we want to enable the energy transition uh, for the communities that we serve. So as I said, we fundamentally believe that we are a key enabler of that. So clean is an important part of that. Fair because we want to make sure that everybody benefits from it you know so we don't leave anybody in our communities behind who doesn't get the opportunity to participate uh, whether it's you know uh, connecting the electric vehicle or uh, using renewable energy in their homes and we want to be affordable because we don't want an energy bill to be a burden to to people as we go through this energy transition uh, and heart i think just gives it meaning to me you know we want to be at the heart of a clean fair and affordable energy future and that's what we're working really hard to do and that's why we've positioned the company and all the actions we take are always coming back to, is it supporting that vision, uh, as you'd imagine, like any organization. In terms of the sector, you know, my hope is that by 2030, and I think, I think we're on track, Lawrence, to achieve this, is that we are seen as one of the sectors that's leading this transition to net zero. You know, as I said, I think there are different waves that are happening and some of the challenges going forward are quite difficult. But by 2030, I would hope that as an industry, we are seen as one of the sectors that led, led uh, other sectors through this. Uh, and by 2050, you know, more globally, I hope we achieve the objective that we set out, which is let's make sure that by 2050, that the global temperatures remain below one and a half degrees C. And that is a massive challenge. You know? um, I said I'm a principal partner on, with the UK government on COP26. And I know they are you know, working incredibly hard to think about how do you not just get countries like the UK and the US committed to ambition, but how do you get 
all the countries around the world to uh, to get strong ambitions to achieve this objective because to be blunt we're not going to achieve it if it's just a few of us it has to be you know every country has to play a role and different countries have got different challenges and therefore some of the developed countries are going to need to support the developing countries in order to allow them to do that so I think that's massively important but you know ultimately that has to be the right goal by 2050. Yeah. yeah, fortunately, we've run out of time. I just want to have, I have one last question for you, John. And and um, I've, I've met you a number of times and you always seem calm. And I know you spend a lot of time in the gym as well. But <laughs> you know, leaders talk constantly about the importance of work-life balance. And you're running a company with with, uh, with the subsidiaries across two time zones. So so how do you unwind? Uh, you know, what do you you do for leisure? How do you calm down? Yeah. Calm yourself down? Yeah, so that's a great question, Lawrence. Um, so someone was talking to me about this the other day, actually, and um, they described um, they described the balancing of four items. I think they described it as four burners on the top of a stove, which is work, family, friends, and health. And you, the job is to keep all four burners going at the same time, because uh, otherwise you, can, you lose that balance. So, so I genuinely try and keep the balance across those four things. So... Um, I'm a great believer that healthy body, healthy mind. So I am one of those strange people you will see running along the Thames at six o'clock in the morning, uh, which is actually where I do quite a lot of my thinking, but it also keeps me fit. Uh, my family is really important to me. So spending time with my daughters uh, uh, is important. And, and we love to go to the cinema, uh, to, uh, to the movies. And we do that on a regular basis. And then outside of that with friends. So um, I'm a big sports fan, whether it's playing sport or watching sports. So the Olympics at the moment are on. So I love watching that uh, with friends. Uh, and I'm a passionate rugby fan as well, which uh, so most people know that about me. So spending time with family, spending time with friends, lots of exercise. And then uh, uh, I'm very lucky. that I love the job I do and I love the sector we're in. So it makes work a lot easier when you do that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, and and I, I appreciate those four things you mentioned, but but I would be remiss if I didn't get into the reading part because I know you you like to read. I mean, I know every CEO loves to read. You do, you read a lot of reports, corporate reports, but set aside corporate reports. Is there a book you're currently reading that has nothing to do with electricity, that has nothing to do with action the grid, that is probably just being read for fun? What's a book you're reading currently or have read recently? Uh, you're right, Lawrence. I think like most CEOs, you usually go home on the weekend with a stack of uh, <laughs> research papers to read to keep yourself current, and that tends to be where you focus your attention. But certainly when I'm on holders, I do like to read for fun. Um, uh, I'm not sure people will know the author, but Nick Hornby is someone I really enjoy reading. He's, um, he's a, a great writer. It's usually quite insightful, but with a bit of comedy in there as well. So... Um, when I want to relax, uh, I'll pick up a book by him usually. And uh, they're, they're usually quite small books. You can sort of read them in a couple of days as well, which is quite useful if you're a CEO. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, John, thank you so much. Our guest has been uh, John Pettigrew, who's the CEO of National Grid. John, thank you so much. Good luck with the uh, COP26. And I look forward to seeing you in Glasgow and uh, all the best. Look forward to it, Lawrence. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org international.